from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is BPR News Presents The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, and I'll guide you through the next hour for our final show of 2020. It's been pretty easy to say at the end of every week this year, that was an historic and or unprecedented week. But this time, that mostly holds up, because the first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine were administered in the U.S. this week, including here in North Carolina. Later this hour, we hear more about two topics that were prevalent long before we ever heard of COVID-19, saving the Cherokee language and building racial equity. But first, we look more at those COVID-19 vaccines. The first ones came to Western North Carolina Tuesday, and a primary care doctor who practices in Fletcher became the first COVID-19 vaccine recipient in our region. That was the sound of employees at Party Hospital in Hendersonville just after Dr. Charna Regual received the first shot. She spends part of her shift working in an urgent care clinic where she is exposed to the virus. She told reporters she was excited about the vaccine's arrival. Well, I actually wanted to get it because I wanted to make, you know, uh, to be able to tell my patients that I did get the vaccine and I believe behind the science of it. So I'm looking forward to telling my patients about it. Dr. Regual is one of 10 high-risk healthcare workers party vaccinated on Tuesday, a mix of doctors, nurses, and environmental service workers. The hope was to get shots to 400 employees by the end of this week. BPR's Helen Chickering was there while the vaccines were being given and spoke with party's chief medical officer, Dr. David Ellis, about the significance of the vaccine for the hospital system and the region. We just witnessed the first vaccine being given here in Western North Carolina. I just want to get what's going through your head. Well, I just feel really great about this. Um, we've waited a long time for this. We have struggled and worried, you know, for eight months now. We have healthcare workers who get sick. They may not get sick from being at work, but they get sick living their lives at home, you know, or they don't get sick, but they're quarantined, and so they can't be at work because they're quarantined. To have a sense of security that, that they can work. Um, that they uh, are not going to get this, or, or likely not going not to get this uh, illness, just changes everything. You know, this is just the, this is the beginning of the end, and so I, I'm just very excited. You know, somebody that I was talking to said that the, the moment almost felt prayerful. And that may be as good a way to describe it as any. It just, there was, there was a palpable excitement in the room and um, now we can move forward. So just a small batch was given today. Help us understand what will happen going forward. Going forward, we will set up a clinic in our party at work, our employee health office, and we will begin to vaccinate the our employees who fall into the 1A category. Uh, we are an open organization, which means as we get all our uh, 1A employees vaccinated, we will then turn to the health department to help us identify people in the community, the dentists, the dental hygienists, people who are also 1As who aren't going to get vaccine otherwise. And we'll begin to vaccinate those people. Help the, the health department will do that also, but we will begin to help the health department in making sure the appropriate people get vaccinated in a timely fashion. We saw uh, physicians and environmental service employees here, so 
1A here at party means what? 1A means that you come in contact with a unit where COVID positive patients are, are housed. So yes, we have environmental services because they're cleaning the ICU and they're cleaning the ED. So as we identified areas in the hospital where COVID positive patients are, uh, we then uh, began to look at everybody in the hospital that comes in contact with those units, and that's how we identified these people getting the vaccine. So just under a 1,000 doses came to party. Do you know at this point how many doses will be used for the 1A employees here? So, so we think right now we have somewhere in the range of 800 1A employees. What we don't know is what percentage of people will take it. You know, people are saying maybe 50 maybe 75, maybe 25, I mean, we don't know. Um, but, but even if 100% took it, we would still have almost 200 doses that we could help the, the, the community. But, and, and certainly there will be people who opt out. So we will, you know, we will have probably several hundred doses that we can then contribute to the community at large. And side effects aren't dramatic. Been mild side effects that don't really affect your life. They're mostly flu-like symptoms, you know, aside from pain at the injection site. It's usually, you know, fatigue, headache, chills, nausea, you know, some fever, but they generally are mild. They're generally self-limited within, within a day or two. Do you have a sense of compliance? Has everyone said thumbs up yes? We don't have a sense of that yet. We'll, we'll, we're going to understand that pretty good this week, I think, but uh, we have not, we have not polled the, the employees to see who wants to take it, who doesn't. Obviously, the, the people are talking to me, everybody talks to me, so they want, they want it, but I make it a skewed population. Uh, we also hope that within the next week that the Moderna vaccine will be uh, approved by the FDA and, and the CDC. Uh, the Moderna does not have to be uh, kept at ultra-low temperatures, so we think that the Moderna likely will, will be more likely to go to health departments that don't have the capacity, the freezer capacity also probably go to the, the pharmacies, CVS and Walgreens, I think, uh, that the state and the, and the government has um, contracted with to treat all the long-term care facilities, both the employees and the residents. So we think that that vaccine being easier to store likely will be shifted that way and that we'll probably continue to get the, uh, the Pfizer just because we have the capacity to store it. How, I know there's a delay, uh, it's a couple of weeks before the second vaccine or three weeks can three weeks. be given. At what point do you consider someone protected? <laughs> well, you'd have to, you have to go in and read the, read the EUA. Uh, if, if you read the EUA, it will, it will tell you that the way the study was set up, that seven days after the second dose, uh, that, 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 that there's protection at that point. Um, if you look at the EUA, it looks like there, there may be some sense of protection prior to that, uh, but that's not the way the studies were set up, so the, the drug manufacturers are not claiming anything other than seven days after the second dose. We're used to the flu vaccine. How will this differ? How is it different for someone receiving the vaccine? Well, I mean, it's different because with the flu vaccine, you you walk into CVS and say, I want it, and you sign a piece of paper and get it. And, uh, you know, this being a, a new vaccine and obviously a, a new disease entity, the government very much wants to track who gets this vaccine, what happens, and that sort of thing. So, again, the, the paperwork, or, or now, if you will, the computer work, you know, that's required to get people registered, make sure um, that everybody can be tracked is, is obviously 
much more significant. We need to make sure we have the appropriate data so these people can be followed so that, um, you know, because we want to know if there are side effects, that sort of thing. So it's a new virus and it's a new vaccine. So we're all being cautious in terms of the of making sure we collect the appropriate data. What impact do you think this will have on the community, on on this portion of Western North Carolina having a vaccine. Well, I mean, hopefully people will see it as we do, which is a, which is the beginning of the end. I mean, hopefully, uh, again, everybody has an element of impatience. Everybody wants to be the first in line. Well, not everybody, but many people want to be the first in line, you know, to get this. And everybody's just going to have to be patient. You know, clearly, you know, healthcare workers that are, you know, in the pits of taking care of these patients should be first. You know, the long-term care facilities need to be vaccinated early. Then, you know, when virus gets into those facilities, it just runs through those facilities. So, you know, there needs to be a thoughtful process, and there is a thoughtful process of risk and who should be vaccinated early. And so if you are somebody who's reasonably healthy in the general population, you're going to have to wait. There's going to be enough vaccine for everybody to get vaccinated, but uh, everybody just needs to be patient. Your time will come. Amid the excitement, we still need to remember the three W's, right? Like this is, you don't have to let go of all the other stuff. No, we st- we, everybody still needs to be very diligent at, at uh, masking and and washing and, and, and waiting, as they say, the three W's. I mean, you know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We vaccinated 10 people here today, okay? There's there's millions of people in North Carolina, okay? So this is just the, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So everybody needs to continue to do what they're doing and... Uh, um, you know, we'll get through this. This is this this is this is the way out of this, uh, but it's not a way out of this today and tomorrow. It's going to take a while. Any other thoughts about the importance of today, or things the public needs to know about the vaccine? Because we are in a vaccine hesitant region. Well. There clearly are some unanswered questions about the vaccine. We don't have long-term data on the vaccine. Um, this virus has just been wreaking havoc with the world, you know, since February, March. We're still a long way from herd immunity. In the absence of a vaccine, we're still a long way from herd immunity. Um, so this is this is a way out of this pandemic without 60% of people having to get having to get this disease. Everybody has to make their own decisions for their own reasons, but this is not going to be a situation where 95 or 97 percent of the people have a vaccine so if you choose not to get it you're going to be protected because so many people did get it there's going to be some percentage of people that don't get it so if you choose not to get it you are still going to be at at significant risk uh, to get this disease That's Dr. David Ellis, the chief medical officer for Party Hospital in Hendersonville, speaking with BPR's Helen Chickering. You can catch more of Helen's reporting from the hospital this week as the first vaccines arrived with our free mobile app or at BPR.org. Last year, the three Cherokee tribes in the United States, including the Eastern Band here in western North Carolina, declared a state of emergency over their shared language because there are so few fluent Cherokee speakers remaining. New Gadua Academy Elementary in Cherokee on the Kuala Boundary strives to teach the next generation of Cherokee speakers. Irene Smoker-Jackson is a translating specialist at the school. 
At 54 years old, she's been learning new tools to teach students virtually during the pandemic. But last month, Smoker Jackson lost her mother to COVID-19. And she says that not being able to ask her for help has been a huge loss. Smoker Jackson spoke with BPR's Lily Kinnett by phone about her work at the school and her mother, who only spoke Cherokee. I've been with them for 12 years, and I started off in the uh, three- and four-year-old classroom. Previous year, I had worked in the state school with the pre-K for 18 years. I had spoke the language all my life. I was raised in a home where my parents, that's all they spoke was the language. And there's eight of us siblings going through the years of my life in school. In public school, it was struggling to speak the language. I mean, the language was no problem. It was the English. The language was hard to come by in the public school because it's strictly English. Then when the Kadua came open at that time at that school, the immersion school, then that was always my dream, my dream job. So when I applied for that job, I immediately got the position. I was willing to accept any position. And so I was hired immediately, the three and four-year-old classroom. That's where I started, and I just worked my way on up because I was a fluent speaker, and fluent speakers are are hard to come by at that time. They are... Um, not many in our community, in the Snowbird community. I live in uh, Robbinsville, but in the Snowbird community, outside the boundary of the reservation. But yet we're still on the reservation. It's about an hour away from the reservation. So I travel every day, the hour one way, about two hours round trip. Wow, that's a that's a that's a long drive to make every day. Yes, uh-huh. but I love my job and I love what I do. It's a full time job, even elementary working in that department. It is even working from home. You're always translating, just like translating twenty four hours a day, you know. And it's just like one word could translate. It could take you a couple hours, you know. You can't just throw it out there just like an English word. You know, you could say English word in just a few minutes. But you have to think about it. You have to throw that word back and forth. You know, you have to make it work here and there. I had elders to fall back on. Just like my mother, um, she passed away back in October 11th from COVID-19. And she was 91 years old. And I had... I had a lot to depend on her if I had a word. And some of the teachers would come to me, I need this word or I need this in a sentence. And I could call her up and say, could you help me with this word? You know, and then she would, we would work together with it. Even she was at home, I could call her on the phone and we would discuss about it. And, and, that great deal is missing right now, but she left a lot of memory with me and a lot of um, a lot of words with me that's in my heart 
that I could still carry on that um, legend that she left behind. Um, even she passed away, don't mean stop the language. I still can continue carry that on with me because the language don't die because she passed away. It's got to continue. That's why we've got to embed in the kids that we're teaching now. That's why I love my job, that I would continue with this, that each child would learn, that wants to learn. Um, you know, I'm sorry to, to hear about your mother. Was she the last monolingual Cherokee speaker in Snowbird? Yeah, she was. She spoke strictly the language. She spoke very little of the language, I mean, English, because um, she um, understood very little English. She could say, she could say very little. She had a hard time communicating. In English, and that was where all her her children would come in um, translating for her. If she had to go to the doctors or her business, I would have to go with her. And if she was hospitalized, I would have to go with her and stay with her in the hospital because I would have to translate for her. How did how did that work with um with COVID nineteen? Uh, the doctors were very understandable about that. And um, just like we did a lot of FaceTime, even um, just like if she had to be hospitalized, it was we were lucky at the time because when COVID-19 hit, she was not in hospitalized at the time. When it, when it hit at that time, when she went, she had to go to the hospital one time, and when it, that time when she had to be in the hospital, I told the doctors, I said, she can't understand English too well. And um, I said, one of us has to be there to translate for her. I said, let's do FaceTime. Get an iPad, get an iPad beside her. And I said, um, then call me on my phone, let's do that, and hold it beside her. And I'll explain to her what you're doing. That's how we did it, iPad beside her. And she had to be put in nursing home and rehab for a while because she fell. If anything important that they had said to her, they would talk to me beforehand. Now, how do we address this? Does she understand this? I said, I told them what to say to her, and... And I would talk to her beforehand. She understood a very little English. If commands, she would understand. And she would say yes, no. And that would be all she would say. I was really appreciative. You know, doctors and nurses worked along with us. But she didn't stay in the hospital very long with that because at that point when she had she got on the hospice care. We just said, we want her at home. We'll take care of her. So they just sent her home, and the nurses came there. And somebody was there at all times. So we we didn't experience it, you know, where she had to be in the hospital where nobody couldn't see her. So we were lucky at time when it was hit and when it was starting to hit. 
she got to come home. She did at the end when she got COVID-19, when it hit really hard on her. When she got put in a lipstick house for two days before she died, she got put in a lipstick house and they took her down to um, Flat Rock. I went down there and stayed in Flat Rock and we did FaceTime through the window. And she was able to see me and hear me. So that's why there's way to do with technology, you know. Do y'all know how your mom got sick? She was on hospice care to begin with. She fell uh, back in February. She had a brain bleed that she pulled through. The doctors had gave up on her back in February. They send her to rehab back in February. February, they sent her to hospice care in Cherokee Hospital. And they didn't think she was going to make it through the night, but she pulled through. In March, she was sent to um, rehab in Graham Care in Robbinsville. And that's when that COVID-19 started hitting slowly. She stayed in there for a month, and while she was in... She fell while she was in the rehab, and um, the doctor said that she wouldn't make it through, that she wouldn't have a chance to live much longer. So we just told them to send her home, and they sent her home in March, and she was at home. We had my sister, somebody had to to her at home because she had to have 24-hour service at home and we all there's eight of us and my older sister she had dementia so she was at um we had to put her in a nursing home and so one of my sisters she retired from work and so she stayed with my mom and um we all was working and so then my sister got COVID-19 that stayed with her, and she didn't know she had it. Then that's when my mom got affected from it. And by the time she found out, my sister found out she had it, and my mom was exposed to it. Then they had to quarantine together. Then nobody couldn't go around, couldn't go into home. And that's when it started hitting real hard in the community. And then we didn't realize how hard it was hitting her. And the nurses, the hospice care nurses, was going in the home, tending to her. And um, my sister that was tending to her was getting really sick from the COVID-19. And she couldn't care for her and care for herself. And... I spoke to the um, hospice care nurse. I said, we're going to have to do something. I said, they're both getting sick, and none of them, neither one of them's getting better, so we're going to have to remove my mom from the home and so one of them could get better or both of them could get better. So they did. They took my mom to Elizabeth House in Flat Rock. Respite care is what they call it, and when they took her there, they realized that my mother had it really bad. Her lungs was already filling up with the mucus 
and fluid was building up. So she lasted two days there. And they said that she'd already had it that bad. And where she was, her body was weak from it. It couldn't fight, couldn't fight the virus. And she just lasted two days. No, I'm so sorry. That's so hard. It was, it was kind of sad, but she lived 91 years. She lived a good life. And she was a single parent. And she raised, after my dad passed away back in 76, and my dad was um, killed by a drunk driver. And so I was always raised up in a home of um, all my siblings. We just spoke the language. We still are in a state of emergency for the Cherokee language, and it does it does feel like a lot of the elders, you know, have been impacted by COVID-19. How are you kind of thinking about that? I mean, obviously, it's very different since this is your mother, and, you know, I'm sure that that's, that's very hard. What does it mean for the community to be going through this? I can't speak for everybody. The language is dying out because it it's taken out our elders, our speakers, and um, that is why it is important that we continue with the schooling and we continue embedded in, in the kids that we have now that's learning this language, that we continue with this, even we're doing it on remote learning. And um, I know we got to keep our uh, speakers, we call them the elders, the speakers, safety from this COVID-19 and um, we just have to continue this technology way. Um, It's just very hard right now and um, that's about the only way to reach them out and just continue it and we just can't give it up. The kids are just as important as the elders and so we got to work playing win-win game either way so we're just we're just trying to keep everybody safe and that's why it's very important you know we just continue this remote learning till we can find a cure for this you know you've you've been teaching the kids online now remotely can you tell me how what it was like the first day you were trying to log on to virtual school it was kind of hard at first because where I live at, internet's hard to come by where I live. I couldn't log on at times and uh, I had a hard time, especially a, a Google Classroom. I would just have to do it by phone. As for, I still have a hard time logging on the Google Classroom. There's times I can, it's just the internet. It's, I live way out in the woods. My co-teacher, she would send me work, and would, finally I said, well, we're going to do something else. And I, she would um, text me the words, and she would uh, screenshot the words, what she needed, and she said, well, let's do it this way. Then I would um, translate those words. I would work on them and translate those words, and I would screenshot her back the words, and it would take me half a day to work on them words. I would screenshot her back, or we would do it by um, auto message. Then they would send it back to me how it sounds to them. And uh, sometimes we could go back and forth three, four times. For example, 
She said, how do you say my brother? She said, do I say Jusdefnut? She sent me that other message. She said, Jusdefnut. And I listened to it, and she said it right. And I said, I sent it back to her, and I said, Jusdefnut. And I said, that's correct. And she sent it back, and she said, how are She said, okay, thank you. My co-teacher, she was like a middleman, because she lives in Cherokee, and I live here in Snowbird. And sometimes we would meet halfway. I would get with her, then she would pass it along. One day it's got to come back to normal. We've got to come back and reunite as one again. We just got to continue and keep it going. Language can't die out because of this COVID-19. It can't overpower us. That's Irene Smoker-Jackson speaking with BPR's Lily Kinep. Smoker-Jackson translates the Cherokee language at New Gadua Academy Elementary in Cherokee. She lost her mother to COVID-19 last month. We close the show today with Tomiko Ambrose Murray and Marisol Jimenez, two Asheville women who have worked many years separately and as colleagues for racial justice and equity. Even before the heightened awareness this year of the Black Lives Matter movement, Murray and Jimenez formed a consulting firm together built on storytelling and unraveling deep trauma to help businesses of all stripes and sizes address their roles in structural racism. Today, Murray and Jimenez have clients across the country and internationally. They spoke over Zoom with BPR's Matt Pikin about their mission and the challenges of building a more equitable society. Tamiko and I started working together at the Center for Participatory Change. Well, we met through a CPC event and then um, joined the CPC staff, Center for Participatory Change. And then we started working there together as co-coordinators of the Racial Equity Circle. And ever since then, just found a kindred spirit and a thought partner to help build out a body of work with each other around how we get free from structural racism and colonization and oppression. They've been working together in that way ever since. So tell me, within the context of your shared work, what did you want to do together that was new and different for both of you? Mighty Soul was on the Hill doing lobbying work and immigrant justice uh, movement like many years back. And I like have more of an educator background and we're both activists and organizers. And I think our experience at CPC, we wanted to build a framework that resonated with what we were experiencing as uh, structural racism being rooted in colonialism and capitalism. And I think we took what we learned at CPC and expanded upon it to create this, this framework that's been really resonating with folks. Does this framework have a name? It does. The Spiral of Transformative Change. The spiral of transformative change, which is really like our whole theory of change beyond racial equity. It's how we understand the way healing happens, the way structural change happens, um, the way community organizing happens. What are the ingredients of this framework that you lead and teach others on? We have developed the theory of change 
We understand that racial equity work is actually a cyclical process. So we developed this theory that evolved out of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, but we have adapted it to fit with um, what we're doing. And it begins with individual internal reflection, because what we found is that people need to connect with their own stories within this larger narrative of, of structural racism that we all share. That internal reflection, understanding the ways in which we all have experienced trauma from structural racism and oppression in all its forms, and that that reflection work is the beginning. And from that place, folks are able to build connections with other people around shared values for equity. And that container is actually really, really important because this work is rooted in relationship. And when it gets real <laughs> and we talk about power shifts, uh, it really is important to have a container to hold that work. Can you be um, specific about what you mean by a container? Yeah, container meaning a, a group of people who are committed to a vision of actualizing equity, committed to the practice and committed to, you know, the work toward uh, building out that vision. When we recognize that we're all living within this, this structure of oppression, um, it impacts the ways that we interact with ourselves and with each other, that, um, that in order for us to be in a liberation space, we have to specifically address. It's like our shadow work. And so one is that we apply a trauma lens. We understand the way that trauma impacts how we move around in the world, particularly in moments where we feel threatened or where there's conflict or where we have to have courageous accountability conversations. All of those being critical conversation points and negotiation points for any equity actual strategy, shifting power, redistributing resources, addressing harm, being in conflict, all of that brings up these trauma responses that then short circuit our effectiveness in the work. So we recognize that this trauma lens coupled with the recognition that our trauma is driven also by where we're positioned in power. So some of us carry the trauma of survivors and some of us carry the trauma of a lineage of perpetrators. Both of them are forms of trauma and they're worthy of healing, but they're different. And so, um, so that recognition, it, those are the places where we start building a container for when the work really gets emotional and it really gets personal and it really requires our bravery, that these, we recognize these relationships and these skills are what hold us in that place not some HR policy or some mandatory required training that says you must. It's actually the relationships and loving each other that is what holds us in the work in those places. One of the reasons why we bring in arts and culture as a practice is because, as you know, it brings people together and it like opens hearts and minds and helps people connect. And so that is one of the reasons why we integrate that work. So talk about how that manifests in the ways that the arts come into play in real time in the work you do. Doing story circles where people are exploring questions, exploring their own personal history, how they came to understand that they had a racial identity, how they came to learn the rules of race, both spoken and unspoken, 
also there's a history behind singing and movement work. And if you think about, for example, the civil rights movement, one of the ways that people engaged was through song, you know, singing in the church, singing on the street, singing would help people to not only be brave and to feel like they were united, but it also, singing as a practice, when we're able to sing together, is a way that when we try to, to harmonize together, it's metaphorical to how we actually try <laughs> to organize and move together and make change together. Sometimes it's a little off key. It takes like a few you know, moments sometimes for us to find the place where we can actually harmonize. And that's actually a metaphor for movement work, for equity work, that we all have to find our role, our, our way of like fitting in to the way we find harmony. And it's not like, you know, them singing together heals everything, right? It's more that it is an opportunity to actually bring people together across difference and to recognize each other's humanity and to figure out how we can move together toward a vision for liberation, a vision for equity. And so it's this deep phase of breaking out of the paradigm that like, we know the answers. I know. And like, so rather it's to say, like, what can we ask? How do we learn what is actually needed from a collective perspective? And we do that through this story-based research. We go deep into organizations and groups, and we have one-on-one -on -one conversations. We collect people's stories, and then we bring them together, together into this collective narrative, which, you know, academia is going to say it's qualitative analysis. But what it is, is it's the way that our communities have often relayed information in an oral tradition and through a story-based communication. We stand behind the research that we bring and it's culturally informed and driven and in itself being a cultural expression is a, like one of these small acts of resistance that infuse Tomiko and I's business and the way we do our work, right, is that folks don't expect when they call in DEI consultants that we're going to be talking about trauma and art and singing June Jordan, but that's what happens <laughs> when they hire us. How has the reception for your work with your clients and doing the storytelling and the deep trauma work, Marisol, that you were talking about, unearthing these traumas, how has that changed or shifted since George Floyd? We'd never seen this kind of response in mainstream America <laughs> of everyone wanting to engage in racial equity work. We have to kind of filter folks who are actually serious about the work and folks who are, you know, just trying to check a box so that they can put out a statement. Um, and we've had folks who reached out and was like, can you help us create an equity statement or a Black Lives Matter statement so that we can publish it out into the world? and look like we're doing the right thing, right? And so that's part of our discernment process. And we said and then, no. <laughs> yeah, and we said no to those. <laughs> How do you suss that out? Like when you're talking mm -hmm. with people and that point of recognition to know the level of sincerity and vulnerability to undergo this work versus mm -hmm. people who want to be seen as meeting the moment. When all that sort of wave of requests came in, first we did a, an initial uh, screening. It may have been like six different groups a week 
that we were interviewing them uh, to try to suss that out and figure out like what is it that you're trying to do here and what is the level of commitment that you have for this work long term. So some of the things that we would look for, for example, there was one catalog company that sells like eco home goods, like politicize your consumption catalog. You know, they only sell one toothbrush, a bamboo toothbrush, and only one kind of like, you know, hemp toilet paper. And, and so in talking to them, though, the request was coming from mid-level management and there was not support from exec level. So that was my first flag. That that is not necessarily mean we don't work with that group, but it does say this isn't an organizational move. This is like an in-house moment, right? The second thing was that it was very like focused on the workshop, the workshop, the workshop. And so Miko and I often say that there, we are not going to workshop our way out of this. We think the workshop is foundational to starting the conversation and having a better conversation with a better set of questions. But doing the workshop by itself is not some like weird inoculation, like you're good now. So that would be another flag if they were just wanting the workshop and that was it. And then finally, it was also figuring out like, what was their ultimate vision for activating equity in their work. And in this catalog company, as an example, there was no point at which this catalog company was going to have a real conversation about the extraction and the exploitation that undergirds their distribution in Mexico or Malaysia or and be having an equity conversation. And just frankly, that misalignment was enough to say, if you're not even going to look at it and you just want to like pretend that equity, that's not something we will do. And it's not even something we have time to do. So we're going to move on to the next. And that was an example of a client that was a big no. As you've done this work together and worked with a number of organizations, all of them with their own cultural anchors, cultural doorways, uh, histories, and stories, what have you learned about the challenges of your work and maybe even altering or augmenting your work because of what you've learned from your clients today that you wouldn't have necessarily foreseen or built into your work a year or so ago? Well, I think the most obvious is, you know, we had no idea that we were going to have to transition all of our materials to an online format. And the intimidation and fear of how am I going to, you know, hold the space for transformation when I just see people's heads on a screen. Some of the positives is that we're able to be in, you know, North Carolina on Tuesday and New York on Wednesday and San Francisco on Friday, (laughs) which I think that would be over capacity if we had to do all that travel. And I think also like we've had to adapt some of our our methods because we use cultural practices, because we use story, because we use song. And that is not like extra to our work. It's actually part of our work. Like, how are we going to you know, raise the vibration (laughs) with these heads on the screen with over a hundred people. 
Asheville has, we have a long history in the city of, of segregation. And I'm wondering in your work that you've done in our area, where are we from a, an awareness and readiness standpoint mm-hmm. to really begin and further uh, the kind of equity you and, and so many others are fighting for? Well, I think first, there's a, a raising consciousness that I think is common for people to understand how the segregation was by design in our city and just like so many others, and the ways in which, you know, structural racism operates on every level, like erasing communities, um, extracting from them, exploiting. One thing that I've been finding in working with people locally and this is not true for all, but I think that, that folks can be so deeply entrenched in institutions and like this is the way things are done and status quo and fear of losing something, fear of change, that I think that is a barrier to people actually being visionary. And I think that what we actually need right now in this moment is for people to be visionary to be bold, to be brave, and to be visionary. Because, and this is some of the work that I think uh, happens within our the Spiral Transformative Change uh, series, is that people come to understand that what we know is these institutions. You know, we live in a, a carceral state that has a, a way of, of operating that is punishing, <laughs> that is throwing away. We need to understand that that is what we know. That is our status quo. That is our norm. And so for people to be able to understand that not only does that impact how we do our work in the world, but it also impacts the way we work together. And one of the reasons why we spend so much time focusing on the internal and the relationship part and building a container is because that is one of the barriers to actual authentic transformation is people, you know, getting divided and people replicating systems of harm in the way that we interact within organizations, the way we interact with with each other. Yes, we look, it's important for folks to look at, you know, programs and you know, the work they're doing in the world, but it's also important for folks as individuals to look in the mirror and for organizations to look in the mirror at their internal stuff that's happening and the ways that we are participating and complicit in uh, structural racism. So I think it, it is a journey and people are entering this conversation from different points. And this is not just unique to Asheville, but it is very present in Asheville. And, you know, with our tourist economy and, you know, seeing every, the, the fabric of our safety net torn to shreds and, you know, so many people out of work that it's, you know, the veil is lifted and, and there's a, an opportunity right now for people to witness what's going on. The other thing that I see here is there's a real track, like a deep historical inertia around the interactions around equity actually being about service and charity and in a paternalistic way like even in the reparations model right like it's like yes reparations and then we're going to help you steward that money with capacity building and oversight and it's like black community already did the work give black community the money period no like we're going to oversight it and watch it and make sure you know what to do with it 
The one thing about Asheville too is because it's so small, I've been living here for 25 years now. And yes, I think that there is a public dialogue and acknowledgement of the existence and persistence of structural racism. And it's like two steps forward, two steps back, <laughs> two steps forward, two steps back. And it's just a pattern. Yeah. And then we're, we're going to have a task force and then we're going to shuffle some papers around and then we're going to have folks who are adamant about getting in the way of change happening. White folks. It's a dance that we've been doing for a while. And I just, I think it's such a small place that change is so possible. The other thing that I experienced about Asheville is like the part of the tourism tilt and it's this culture consumption. Like, I mean, it's super intense. And then when you couple that with like the witnessing of the economic reciprocity and the inclusion reciprocity of the sources of the culture that's being consumed and you see that inequity, I think that's also something that's in that underbelly of why the movement itself here in Asheville can get so contentious and feel so quickly swept over by well-meaning white radicals and progressives who are like in that track quickly take microphones and task force seats and you know all of that in this work. It's so nuanced here. Liberation happens when we are all invested in fighting for it. But there is this tone in Asheville that can also be particularly challenging. Control is a very active verb in this. But who sets the foundation for what these changes are and look like? You mentioned something, Marisol, a a few moments ago about well-meaning white people and how they still will want to control the foundation of what this change is rather than completely cede ground territory and voice to people of color who are most affected by the need for these changes. I think it takes everybody in this who's already in the system to be brave about reconsidering what their place is in the system. Often you know, organizations or institutions or businesses will start with that conversation of like noticing, whoa, actually, we're all white in here. (laughs) And that is a step because, you know, there could be a time when people don't even notice, right? But the deal is that if the strategy ends up being diversity, like let's go find you know, some Black, Indigenous, POC folks to, you know, populate our business or our organization. But if the culture is not primed and ready to have folks, Black, Indigenous, POC people present and contributing and sharing power, then what actually happens is it ends up being like a revolving door. And folks end up being like, you know, experiencing tokenization or just experiencing harm. This really isn't about white people need to cede all their voice and be silent and lift up BIPOC voices only. It's not ceding voices. It's what voices are being centered. So we're like, we're really about like, how do we center the voices of the most impacted in this work and in this moment, right? And that 
in, in when we are looking at how we're each impacted by this, the, I think that white people need to find themselves in it. Like Matt, what, find where are white people being traumatized, impacted. This system is not working for you either. Yeah. And so like, this isn't something people are doing for like the benevolence and it's the right moral thing to do for BIPOC people. Like this system is actually killing white people. This system doesn't care about white people, actually. Go to Appalachia and see how much this system cares about white people. It doesn't. But it sells this idea, right? So if white people could find that their liberation and healing and wellness and longevity and sustainability is also wrapped up in racial equity, then we're onto something, right? And then we can start talking about like white silence is actually, it's either violent, it's either, it can be anemic, right? Like we need white people who speak powerfully against white supremacy. Not like I'm going to wait for the black person to be the one who has to always say it. Or I'm going to wait till there's BIPOC people in the room and then we talk about race. Like white people, just in white organizations need to be having powerful direct conversations, liberation conversations about taking down white supremacy when there's not a BIPOC person that even knows that happened. And this is maybe the last thing I'll say about this piece. White supremacy is a pathology. That's the first thing that Tamiko and I came to when we started coming into like, well, what would that pathology be if we were to diagnose it? Uh, what would it be? And then how do we understand pathology as trauma and how it plays? That's how we got years ago sitting on Tamiko's front porch in the rocking chairs. You remember that? And like talking about white supremacy as a form of narcissism. And so what narcissism is going to do is project, well, if I can't lead, then I must not be of worth at all in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not true. Not either you are leading or you are silent. Like there's a whole lot of room between those two things. And it's like, can you have a voice where you aren't leading? Can you have a voice where you are not sure? Can you have a voice where you actually might make a mistake and be corrected? Can you still have a voice where you're um, sharing? And I think the idea that you can't have a voice unless it's directing, leading, controlling, uh, occupying is actually a form of white supremacist pathology because part of the healing is realizing like we can have voices and be collective, be vulnerable, be imperfect, be sharing, be exploring, be not knowing, be wrong and still have a voice and not like take all my toys and go home, like, and still stay in all my flawedness and collectivity, even I, when my ideas don't get traction. Some of what you see in this, that, that binary of it's either this or that and not seeing the infinite scales in between, I would think some of that comes from the white side. I would imagine some of that comes from, we spent centuries as the oppressors. We spent centuries keeping down people of color. So it can only be flipped. Like they see it as this existential match where this, so they don't know how to exist in the infused scales of color. It's a completely foreign paradigm. They don't trust it. 
Of I, course not. Of course not. And I think, you know, so one of the things that we'll often say is that, you know, in our definition of equity is the transformative redistribution of power. But it's not just the redistribution of power because we want to do power differently. Like we've said in, in the past, like zero interest in you handing me the keys to the prisons and the detention camps, and now I get to run them. I don't want to oversee that kind of power. So yes, we want to redistribute power, but we also need to reimagine the way that power happens. And I think the fear that is underneath some of that is like redistribute power and now you are the cops and now you have the guns and now you, and we're like, nah, actually, like, it doesn't look like that in my liberation vision at all, where now it's all white people in jails and camps. Like, it, it, that's the projection, right? And it's like, no, this is where the visionary liberation dreaming needs to happen that Tomiko has referenced. What white people need to do right now is to go get their people. <laughs> and that so many people have been left behind and hurt people hurt people. And I think that what, what, what happens often is people point at the people with the hood on and the Confederate flag on their car and actually not being willing to look at their participation in that. Our liberation is all tied up together. And I think that that is what we need to come to understand. You know, something that Harriet, we learned from Harriet Tubman is that some people on the, the path to freedom and liberation will be left behind. And so I think that the, as painful as that is, if white folks can go get their people and try to not leave the, their family members and their, their neighbor, and, and I know it's hard to have those, those difficult conversations and we're in such a polarized moment because yeah. we're seeing the consequences of people being thrown away. And not just like go get your people, like go correct your people, like but there's that like heal your people. It's like yeah, go go people. get your people and love your people because yeah. they're not okay. That's Marisol Jimenez and Tamiko Ambrose Murray speaking with BPR's Matt Pikin. And that does it for the third episode and the final one of 2020 of BPR News Presents The Porch. The BPR News team is Helen Chickering, Cass Harrington, Lily Knepp, Matt Pikin, Corey Valancourt, and me, Matt Bush. Before we go, we want to say a few things. First, a big thank you to our friends and colleagues at The State of Things. They went out of their way to make sure our news team and our station, and by extension, all of our supporters and listeners in Western North Carolina, were just as much a part of the show as anywhere else in the state. The show and its determined crew will be dearly missed. Starting on January 4th, we welcome new programming to our schedule, headlined by The Takeaway with host Tanzina Vega, which you'll hear at 2 o'clock each weekday afternoon on both of BPR's channels. Read more with our free mobile app or at our website, bpr.org. And while you're there, support Blue Ridge Public Radio in our year-end fund drive. Think of what the station has meant to you this year in times of turbulence, in times of anxiety, in times of determination, in times of healing. Think of all of those who may not be able to give this year because of all that 2020 has wrought. Your financial gift supports not just you and us, but them too. Give now at BPR.org and thank you. We'll see you again on the porch in 2021. Stay safe.